0: And this morning, we're back in the book of James, so as you turn there, I'll begin. The workers have nothing to lose in this revolution but their chains. They have the world to gain. Workers of the world unite. These are the closing words of the most infamous manifestos in history. Karl Marx, in his famous attempt at building a communist revolution, his dream was that of a classless society, some of which we might say sounds good on the outside. He said he wanted needs to be supplied for all, for people to be clothed, people to be educated, then adequately paid for their education. He wanted people to be treated fairly and to be treated as equal. But after further review, we realize it was toxic. His dream was really a nightmare. It was an excuse for people to seize power for themselves, not for others, but for them, for their own good, for what they desired. And see, man has had this tendency, even way back in Genesis, to want to build this utopia, their own perfect place, and they're unable to do it. They're unable to succeed. We have the same tendency as Karl Marx, even, Desiring for all, but in in so doing, we're just selfish, becoming smug even. Ultimately, putting our needs above everyone else. That's why I asked Pastor Ryan to read that passage earlier in Philippians 2. Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But we need to think deeply this morning as how we deal and talk with one another. This is what society is ultimately built on, the way that you and I relate to one another. This is crucial for us as a church family. And and ultimately, this is what I'm called to preach, to to shepherd, uh, to care for. It's a family, not a crowd, a family. Uh, It's easy to draw a crowd today. It's hard to build a family. And that's our purpose here as we, we turn our attention back to the book of James. And it's been a number of weeks, and, and I want to bring everyone back up to speed so that you can fully understand what James is communicating to us. But but before we do that, I, I need to warn you of something. I have a balance that I have to walk through as I preach through the book of James. In fact, it's a balance that I knew I would need to have when I accepted a call to pastor a church. And here it is. There, there are different types of people that come to worship. And this book, the book of James, shows us who we are when we read it and when we study it. And this book creates a whole lot of weight on us as a church and a lot of weight on me as a pastor as I study to preach it. And here's the skinny. Here's the three people. There, There are those first that are faithfully walking with the Lord. Mature believers, you've been saved for years, learning, growing, fruit is being produced in your life, and the, the church as a whole, the family is growing spiritually because of your membership here, because of your involvement and, and, and connection to this church. Then there are those, the second type of people that are immature believers. You, you're you saved, but you still have yet a lot of growth to happen. And I don't want you to walk away thinking that it's impossible, that that. that I don't want you walking away thinking you're not saved, when in fact you are, you just need to grow. You need to grow in the Lord. But then there's this third group. And I'd wager that it's larger than you and I could guess. It's it's those that are here, who have been here for a while, and they're moral people. But they're not Christians at all. In fact, these people talk about Jesus they talk the Christian talk. They they even look like they're walking the Christian walk. They, they sing. They try to pray. And they even give money and serve. But they're not saved. They're not Christians. And they've been here for years. They talk about God like, like he's a historical figure, like Abraham Lincoln, but they don't know him. He has no place in their daily life. This is the balance that I have to walk when we come to this section of scripture. Those that are mature will take it in. They'll they'll meditate on it. They'll pray about it. They'll look to apply it. They they may be convicted, but they want to take God's word and they want to put it into their life. And then the immature believers could take it, and they could be scared and intimidated and could go away discouraged, but I don't want that to happen. So I want to encourage them to lean into Jesus Christ, to to take what his word says, apply it to your life, don't walk away discouraged, just see areas of more growth that needs to happen. And then there's the non-Christian, posing as a Christian, who walk away no different. In fact, you might be bored as I talk right now. God knows you and, and and maybe this is something shocking to you. God's not disgusted with you. He knows you. He knows you have rejected him and yet he brought you here this morning. God did that. And there's something in this sermon for you. God's still drawing more people to himself. And so friends, this is where I am this morning as we look into the text trying to balance these areas and yet be faithful to the Bible. And so that's what I want to do. And I I know I'm convinced there are other churches in our area that, that won't do this. You could go to other places and hear happier sermons today. But I'm compelled to be faithful to the Bible. In fact, I would say it would be cruel for me to not love you this way by allowing you to continue to be deceived into thinking that you're saved when you're not it would be cruel for me. It would be selfish for me and for my own comfort out of fear to keep butts in seats, to not warn you about your eternal soul. And so I feel more compelled by the fact that I will stand one day before God as my judge, that I will preach the word, than I am whether you stay or not. I love you, I, I speak from that vantage point, and so I will speak what the word of God says, and frankly, I will, by God's grace, leave it up to him to give judgment later. So we're gonna look at a difficult section here, I believe, in James two, but I wanna back up into chapter one, and I wanna start in verse 19, and you might have come in and noticed something different in the seats. Maybe you were worried that there was a bunch of seats saved, because there was Bibles laying there. Sorry, we threw a curveball. Really, we wanted to make sure we had enough of the Scriptures out that if you didn't have a Bible, you have one right there. So there's a, a black Bible. It looks like this sitting in your row. And uh, the point of that is, is that when we open the Word here, we open the Word. So if you don't have a Bible in front of you, whether it's on your phone or one in the pew, you're going to get lost. So you need to have the Bible open, and we're going to look at James Chapter 1 here, it's on page 950. If you have a Bible there from the pew, it's on the, the right side of the page, or left side, excuse me. And, and if you're unfamiliar, and I don't want to draw much attention, but if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses. And so look at chapter 1, verse 19 there at the bottom of the page, and follow with me as I read James chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rapid wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have... Become a transgressor of the law, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather together as the body of Christ and to hear your word preached. And we ask God that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds to understand this glorious truth from your word. That as you bring conviction to our hearts that we don't turn cold to that, but we receive it with humility, looking to grow and to become more like your son. And that we would leave this place different than when we came in. For your honor and for your glory, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you came in this morning, you should have received a bulletin and some notes. And in those notes are the points this morning that will guide us as we walk through this first half of James chapter 2. And if you notice, we've kind of went slow through chapter 1, but chapter 2 is kind of quick now. There's just There's stories in two halves, so in two weeks we're going to look at just chapter 2, Lord willing. But the the, the schedule for this morning is just the first 13 verses of chapter 2, and and three points there, two questions and an answer. First, what is the problem? Second, why is it a problem? And third, a way out of the problem. And so that'll hopefully guide you as we look at the text here. But before we get into chapter 2, we read part of chapter 1, and then we're reminded of what this says and how this applies If you remember in verse 23, as I just read and I spoke of a number of weeks ago, it says there, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. And if you remember, we talked about the Bible as as this mirror. He says a a disobedient person is someone who looks into the mirror, into the Bible, into the word of God, and then goes away and does nothing. The Bible, the mirror, shows you who you are. It shows you you. And when you look into the mirror here, in your, in your house, in your bathroom, it shows you who you are. The good, the bad, and the, you can answer last. But when you look in the word of God, it not only just shows you what you should do, it shows you who you are. He says your, your natural face, who you are when you come to God. And so you have to see yourself first. When, when you come to the word, you have to see who you are. Before you can do anything, you have to see who you are. But then in verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. You have to see who you are, who you really are. See, he says if you want to live this life as a Christian, you have to look at the mirror and not look away. Don't forget what you just saw. You have to continue to remember who you are. And as you remember who you are, and as you take the word with you, You'll be able to live the Christian life. See, a changed life flows out of a radical transformation in your self-understanding. A radical new self-understanding brings a new radical life. A radical new understanding of who I am. I am a sinner in need of God's grace. And that because of Jesus Christ, I am saved. See, being leads to doing. Not the other way around. You don't act like a Christian to become a Christian. You you become a Christian through the work of the Holy Spirit and, and God implanting his word and saving you. And then you act like a Christian. And James says in, in verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. God is the one who saves. Being leads to doing. And then he says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So when James uses the word religion, he's not talking about cold, dead orthodoxy. He's he's saying a genuine faith or real obedience to God out of a heart that has been transformed by God and his word. And then verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And this is a command for us as believers. If we Call ourselves Christians, we will we will look to be obedient to the word and we'll look different than the world. We don't just look in the mirror and walk away. We we take it with us. We we look at it and we apply it to our lives. And friends, this is the only way to live the Christian life. You have to take the word with you, and you have to apply it to your life. And how now here is the rub for some of us here, possibly. There are those that believe all they have to do is live a moral life. If they just live a, a chaste life, if they just vote Republican and not cheat on their taxes, they feel maybe that they're good with God. I don't know if that talks about you or not, but God says your religion is a sham. his religion that is pure and undefiled before God. The Father is this. And he launches in to the end of, chapter one and right in the chapter two, James moves forward with the full court press to those that are living this deceived life. Tim Keller says in his books, Gospel and Life, he says, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast." They say, I worked hard to get where I am, and, and, and so can anyone else. And Tim says this is the language of a moralist heart. But others who say, I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited grace and mercy of God. That is the language of a Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in the deeds of mercy to the needy. And it's an eventable, it's a sign then of a person who has grasped God's grace and looks to apply it to their life. And I'm concerned for us that we understand God's grace and his mercy. Do you understand the mercy of God? Do you understand, do you see how incredible is the mercy of God? Do you understand it? James says for us, the evidence is seen in how you treat those around you. To be cold and distant to the needs of people right around you as you're made aware of it means you either not fully understand the magnitude of the gospel or you've rejected it. You've rejected it completely. Works do not save us. I, I will preach that to the day I die. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. But for us as Christians, we need to see the world differently. We need to see the world differently than the rest of the world. We're not perfect, and we, we know we have more areas to grow, but we're progressing. And when your life shows no progress, no, no desire to read the word of God, looking at the mirror, then when you come in on Sundays and walking away unchanged, you should be questioning whether you are a Christian or not. It would be cruel for me to encourage you in your veneer lostness. I'm not going to do that, and neither is James. That's all my introduction, so we're going to get started now. Number one, what is the problem? So here's the case study that James brings before the church and before us. The problem that James gives for us in his first four verses. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. I read that in an English accent, just so you know, in my head. I, I can't do that, but that's how I read it. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. And so just, just so you're aware, if you serve as an usher or greeter in our church, this is your sermon, okay? A few of you are getting that. All right, good. Pay attention, greeters. And everyone else. Verse 3, And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here at a good place, while you say to the other poor man, You stand over there or sit down on my feet. Verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is a verse for all of us, not just greeters. The, the, the what that James brings to us is, is this, Don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Don't do it. Don't show partiality. Literally, it means to accept someone according to their face. That's what partiality means. It's to show a certain level of respect to one person because of how they look or or maybe who they are because you know them or how they carry themselves. And then, then to show another different level of respect to someone else, a lower level of respect. And he's saying, don't play favorites. Don't do it. And, and really what he's saying is even more directly in verse 4, we shouldn't discriminate what is it to discriminate or show favoritism he's saying don't withhold or give glory or love or affection or hospitality or friendship or mercy or kindness or service to people based upon their external appearance he's saying don't do it and you have these two people that he gives an illustration and one of them when you read it in the Greek is is really kind of funny it says, one man comes into the assembly gold-fingered. It's really, literally what it says. Gold-fingered. It's not a James Bond movie from the 60s. It means making uh, this person has gold all over and their fingers. It's it, making sure they show him importance to by, why, by what you would notice about him wearing to the assembly, to the meeting, the gathered church. He's a man of importance. He's a man of weightiness. This is a a man or a woman of power. They have a lot of influence. And in this person, it seems as though he's making sure it's seen by everyone. And how is it? It's by the gold in his fingers, the fine clothes, literally the the bright clothes. Not sure I can adapt that to today, but there's a, a flash in some way of this person as they come in. And then the poor man comes in. He's not dressed in fine clothes. In fact, James uses extreme language here. He he is wearing shabby clothing. Literally, it is filthy, greasy, soiled even. To the point that it's unpleasant to be around. And he's obviously not wearing church-appropriate clothes. And people notice. He's less important, less than less influence, less power. And it's all seen on how he dresses. And they both come into the meeting time in the church, and they come from different walks of life, and instantly they're seen or smelled. And James says emphatically for us, don't discriminate. Don't show favoritism. You treat them the same. Now, you may say, we don't do that. I I don't act that way. I I wouldn't hold someone to a special view. And, And I pray that you won't have this temptation, but I live in America too, and I know that this is a possibility. Let me put it on a shelf that I believe most of you can reach. Let's say this morning that Russell Wilson comes into our service. Quarterback for the Seattle Seahawks. They have a 1 o'clock game, so he's going to come to the service at 1030 and get out, hopefully in time. (laughs) He and his wife's come through, and and they they thought they're going to check out this church in Edgewood. They they humbly come in. And how many of you, from a distance, would see and think, I want to be a greeter today? (laughs) But behind Russell comes in a poor man, homeless, He's been outside during the night. He's, he's not here for a handout. He, he wants to come see this church, to, to see what worship's like. And he comes right behind. R- Russell is there, good-looking, and fine clothes, smells normal, not really even drawing attention to himself. He's just here. And the guy behind him, not so much. His clothes are tattered. He hasn't showered in days. And you're sitting here. You're, you're showing restraint. From the other side of the of the room, just glancing casually over where's Russell at? Where's he gonna sit? And, and you get your eyes really big if he makes his way towards your section. And all of a sudden you're overwhelmed by the glory of Russell. Glory. What does glory have to do with this? Do you remember what glory means when we looked at it in 1 Samuel? What does glory have to do with this topic? James said in verse 1, chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kabad, which means heavy, weighty. The, the word glory in the Bible, it's, its only original reference is a physical reference to a physical heaviness or weight. That is what the word means. And let me give you another example. The oceans are glorious. They are literally glorious. Think about it. You stand before the ocean, and you cannot see the other side. You cannot see the other side and what's happening over there. It's, it's unending to your eyes. You, you drive to the Pacific Ocean, and you walk out, and you begin to look. You sit down, and you see the water, and you know that on the other side, 5,000 miles away, there is Tokyo. But you can't see it because the ocean is glorious. It's expansive. It's huge. And you sit there and you take it in. And you look at and you think of yourself compared to the hugeness of this ocean. And you feel so small. It's weighty. It's glorious. It's heavy. And James says to us in verse 1 that there's only one person that we should hold as glorious in your midst. It's Jesus Christ. But you see Russell on the other side of the room, and you're enamored by his glory, his weightiness. I mean, he's a Super Bowl champ. He throws for thousands of yards a season. He's a winner, and he's a nice guy. He's pleasant to be around, so I hear And what happens is his glory begins to overwhelm you. You know you shouldn't feel this way, but even when the singing starts, you wonder, what what does Russell think? Does he like it? Oh man, Jeff's getting up to preach. I hope he doesn't lay an egg. I want him to come back. You're wowed by the glory of Russell. And yet the other man that came in behind him you hope he doesn't sit by you. I mean, he could smell it when he came in. Not alcohol, but just, you could tell, that guy hasn't showered. You're wowed by one and disregard the other. The word glory means basically how important you are, how much you matter, how much of a difference you make. You see, it's clout. Will he notice me? What can I get from him? And in this passage, the rich man is showing forth his glory, and the poor man is showing forth his lack of glory. And James says, don't put the visible rich person in a special spot and then relegate the poor person to another. Don't do it. And this isn't saying that you need to be friends with every type of person exactly the same. It doesn't say that. And I know there's a drift to spend time around people who are similar to you. But in the church, we should live differently than the world. And we shouldn't show favoritism. When we come to worship, we come to give glory to one person. We come to be enamored with the glory of one person. And it's Jesus Christ. So that's the what question. Now the why. Why is it a problem? We shouldn't discriminate. Why? You know this question is coming. It always has to come. and It has to be answered. And you have it in your own life. I mean, how many of you, raise your hand if you have kids in the home or if you had kids in the home. You know this question. Right? If you don't, come to my house because you'll hear it. 90% of my time as a parent is explained to my kids Why? Hey, don't leave your jacket on the ground in the middle of the garage. And they respond, why? I have a choice to make in that moment, don't I? I Start explaining that the garage floor is dirty, that we walk in it with our dirty shoes, the jacket's nice, it's here to keep you warm. And if you do that, I get angry. And then your mom gets angry. There's bad things that happen. Or I say something else. You all know what you say, right? You either explain why or you say, because I said so. (laughs) Exactly. James does better that for us. He says why. And that's what he does now. He doesn't waste any words for us. He begins the chapter, don't discriminate in the church. Don't do it. Why? Look at verse 4 again. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? We shouldn't show favoritism. We shouldn't discriminate based upon the exterior or the flash, the outward appearance of a person. Why? Because James says to us, we dishonor God and we show that we don't understand the gospel. It dishonors God, and it shows that we don't understand the gospel. Favoritism isn't something that God just frowns upon. No, he views it as evil. And it's foolish when we attempt to discern people's value based upon some external features. We not only try to usurp God's role as judge, but we fail miserably at it. James is serious about this. He's saying it needs to stop. Don't fall into this trap of discriminating against other people, he says. Stop choosing to just be around people that you like when you come to church and when you join a church. You know, I understand we don't intend to do it this way, but we we discriminate. We tend to want to pick people just like us. We tend to to do this in our groups and our friends. We, We separate. We choose teams. Do you know what that was like? Do you remember that in school, choosing teams? You know, you got in the recess and it was time to play football or basketball and they chose teams. AND THEY NEVER CHOSE THE TALL, SLOW ONE. WHY? BECAUSE I'M NOT GOING TO HELP IN FOOTBALL. I'M SLOW. YOU PICK THE FAST ONE. YOU PICK THE MOST ATHLETIC ONE. YOU PICK THE PEOPLE THAT YOU THINK ARE GOING TO HELP YOU MOST. AND THAT'S SPORTS. I'M NOT GOING TO GO ANY FARTHER. THAT'S SPORTS. THAT'S OKAY. IT'S SPORTS. BUT IT'S NOT FOR THE CHURCH. AND I WANT TO SAY THIS, FRIENDS, LISTEN CLOSELY. That is anti-gospel. That's against the gospel. This is not how God works in the church. Do you really think that God is after those that are smartest and the most beautiful and the most talented and those that have lots and lots and lots of money? Do you really think God's up there selecting his team with only the best in mind? Look around, friends, or look up here. That's not who he selects. We're not it. I'm sure there are more talented people than me. Most definitely better looking. More money. But God chose me. The word chosen here in verse 5 means to to choose out from many possibilities. To choose out. It's a verb in the middle voice meaning that, God has chosen his elect out of the world by himself and for himself. And the order is so important. Divine election precedes and produces saving faith, not the other way around. God didn't look down the tunnels of time to see who would choose him so that he could pick them first. No, it's the opposite here, friends. If you're a Christian here this morning, it's because God chose you first, which then enabled you to have faith because he gave it to you. Salvation is all of God so that no one could boast. And if you're here this morning, Christian, it's not because you are awesome. I have to be honest with you this morning. You're not awesome. God didn't choose you because you're all that in a bag of chips. That's the most loving, faithful thing I can do to you. You're not awesome, God is. THAT HE WOULD DARE TO CHOOSE ME. THAT HE WOULD DARE TO CHOOSE ME. PAUL RIGHTLY TELLS US IN 1 CORINTHIANS 1, 26, FOR CONSIDER YOUR CALLING, BROTHERS. NOT MANY OF YOU WERE WISE ACCORDING TO WORLDLY STANDARDS. NOT MANY WERE POWERFUL. NOT MANY WERE OF NOBLE BIRTH. BUT GOD CHOSE WHAT IS FOOLISH IN THE WORLD TO SHAME THE WISE. GOD CHOSE WHAT IS WEAK IN THE WORLD TO SHAME THE STRONG. This is why we should never assume that God needs to start saving big movie stars or famous athletes to get the word out. Friends, the gospel goes forth through normal people like you and me. That's who God chooses. And we don't boast in us. Like we, like we have anything to boast in. No, we boast in God. And so when you show partiality, when you show favorites and discriminate, you're dishonoring God because you have stepped out of saving grace and you're making yourself judge and you're making yourself God. And friends, you need to remind yourself you're not saved because of your awesomeness. You are saved because God is awesome. And for us to have the standard for others to meet to be recognized as human is anti-gospel. It is it is not how God is, and it's not how God works. And frankly, it's outside the mercy that God has shown to you. James continues, though, in verse 6. You have dishonored the poor man and not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you were called? James explains the ludicrous behavior of these believers showing favoritism because the rich that they hold up so high are the ones that are only in it for themselves. It's really an indictment right here in the middle. He's saying, you so want to be loved by the world, to be accepted by the world, to be to be in love with this and applauded that you dishonor your eternal brother and cuddle up with those to belittle this noble and excellent and fair and worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They mock you and they mock your God and they make life difficult for you. He says, you'd rather have them as friends? Doesn't make sense. And how does this apply to us now? Whether you know it or not, the church in America is trying so hard to be seen as cool. need to be hip, trendy. And all that is is cuddling up to the world who belittles them, who mocks them, who attacks them, who hurts them, who wants nothing to do with them. And I want my fellow churches to understand that this incessant need to have the world look at us as cool, must die. That's not who we are as the church. Stop thinking that we have to be cool. We're we're never going to make Jesus look cool. Cool enough that everyone will think he's cool and I want to get to know him. No, we live against the culture, not for it. You see, once you try to make Jesus cool, he isn't Jesus anymore. He's someone totally else he's just like one of us. And friends, that's not going to help you when you stand before God. An earthly, cool Jesus won't help you when you stand before God for judgment of your life. You need a holy Jesus, not a cool Jesus. So we've seen what the problem is and we've seen why it's a problem at last is a way out of the problem. James does not want to leave us wondering what we should do to combat this problem. The steps to address the problem is to fully understand what it is and why it happens. But now now we need a way out. How do we we deal with this problem? And there is a way out. James gives us the way. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you are doing well. If you want to please the heart of God, you have to go back to the word. See, James points us back to the mirror, to the word. Do the word. Read the word, obey what the word says, and take the mirror with you for life. See, the way out of the problem is obey the word. And his argument is rather simple. Fulfill the royal law. Love your neighbors yourself. Do the royal law. Why is it royal? Well, because King Jesus said this is what he did, and he did it. Jesus said in Matthew 22, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James points his reader back to the Bible as the answer to their problems. It's, it's what the scriptures say, what Jesus taught us. This is, again, taken from Leviticus 19, which makes provisions for honoring and showing love to the poor, to those that are oppressed or deaf or blind or sojourners or servants or women or elderly. And he's saying, have compassion for those people not just the ones that the world values. Line yourself up with the word, the royal law, and do the word. Obey the word. And then James brings the heat. Verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery. also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have been tra- become a transgressor of the law. And here's what happens. You, you can come into church, a large church, maybe like ours, where you might be able to sit and hide. And you can feel good because you got up and you came to church, you're just trying to fit in. But then James singles you out. And you try to avoid it. Maybe just uh, you're gonna repeat something that pastor said later in the week, just to prove that you listened to the sermon. But you're no different. You're still in your unbelief. And you're, you're going to try to justify yourself saying, I didn't hurt anyone. I didn't commit adultery. But James' point is, so, so you didn't commit murder, you didn't commit adultery, but you discriminate. And you're a racist. You've broken the law. You didn't do this by accident. You, you willfully broken the law. You have sinned against the holy and just God. Now, conservative Christians think murder and adultery are bad sins. That's that's very bad, Jeff. But James is saying you cannot just pick and choose which are bad and what isn't. There isn't some hierarchy in the laws of God. Are you a racist? Either outwardly or in your heart? You're breaking God's law. God says you're a lawbreaker. See, conservative churches, I've seen them, I've been a part of them. They tend to say, oh, yes, most definitely, adultery, uh, adultery, uh, murder, and drunkenness are terrible. They are. But racism, materialism, well, you know, oops. To err is human. That's not what God's word says. There isn't some hierarchy of his law. and We need to understand that sinning is ultimately breaking a relationship. He, God, is the one who said there in verse 11 that we shouldn't commit adultery. It comes from God. It's, it's his expression of his character. If God says something is wrong, it's because it's inconsistent with his character of who he is. Now, How does this play out? Let me illustrate this for you. Let's say my wife asked me to go to the store and get three bags of salad mix for a meal. It's clear to me that she wants three bags. And if it's a grocery list, if it's more than two items, I write it down. I take the list with me. I know what she wants. But I come home and she comes to me to receive the three bags of salad mix. Instead, I purchase two bags of chips. And she says, was there salad? And I say, yep. Now the issue isn't the salad. She could go to the store and buy the salad. If that was the issue, she could say, all right, I'm going to go buy salad. The issue is our relationship at that point. She has to get to the bottom on why I understand what she wants And then I go and deliberately do the opposite. This is what James is saying to us this morning. The law isn't a point system. It shows us that we don't obey what God has told us to do. And when we sin, we break that relationship with God. And God isn't some passive creator just walking away. He's jealous for his children. So we cannot just check out breaking the word and not thinking that there's an issue. James says that favoritism breaks the law of God and you can't repeatedly and happily and willingly break it and then think that everything is just hunky-dory. And perhaps today you have been confronted for the very first time in your Christian life with the sin of favoritism. And I say, Amen. Now, James says, take the mirror with you and obey and do the word. It continues, though, in verse 12 so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Don't speak and act as those who are still under the law with no hope, and said we should live as free people. There is freedom for us when we obey the word of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You might say, how does the law bring you freedom? How can any law bring you freedom? And that's a good question. Because we tend to define freedom as a removal of restrictions. But the Bible says we are free when we live within the restrictions. And we don't see that naturally. We, we push against that. Our definition of freedom is flawed. You see, the biblical definition of freedom is that you are free. You have been released to truly be and live how God created you to be how you were built. You can understand who you now are in light of God. And in a few weeks as parents, you're going to sit down with kids at the crack of dawn opening gifts. Some of those gifts from your kids are going to come with directions. Last year I sat at the table for over an hour putting together a Lego set. What would have happened if I didn't follow the directions? it wouldn't have been put together correctly. Trust me, those things are really detailed. It would have been a mess. See, those instructions are there for the freedom of my kids to enjoy the toy. Freedom comes from restricting yourself to what the owner manuals say. And friends, this is the instructions on in how to live how to glorify God, how to deal with your kids, how to talk with your spouse, how to live in this world. And we have freedom when we read it. We have freedom because God made you. He's the author. And so God has every right within himself to tell you exactly how you should live. And he says, We need to know the word. We need to listen to the word. We need to apply the word. And the Bible is our owner's manual for our soul, the owner's manual for our heart. And we will be blessed when we persevere in obedience to the word. Well, James ends here this section, verse 13 For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. One pastor has asked the question, are you merciful? Why is this a crucial question to answer? Why cannot we just leave here this morning without having to deal with the subject? Why can't we just move on? Why can't we just carry on our lives? Why do we have to answer this question? Because Jesus healed the sick. Because Jesus fed the multitudes. Because Jesus gave legs to the crippled. Because Jesus granted sight to the blind. Because Jesus opened the ears of the deaf. Because Jesus found prostitutes and tax collectors and the smelly and the poor and the broken and the downtrodden and the hurting people and he drew them into the sphere of his love. because Jesus touched the untouchable and he loved the unlovable and he forgave the unforgivable and he welcomed those who were undesirable and because right now Jesus saves the otherwise unsavable. Why? Because they deserve it. Titus says, when Goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, not because we met Him halfway, not because we took the proper steps forward and in good faith have elevated ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, but He saved us because of His mercy. And friends, We are here today because Jesus Christ didn't say with cold indifference, give them what they deserve. They brought it on themselves. Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. And God looking down from heaven and seeing us in our misery. And her need doesn't just feel for us. I feel bad for Jeff. He doesn't do that. God takes the steps to relieve my distress. And he sends his son from the eternal glory of heaven. The perfect fellowship of the trinity. this is what Christmas is. It's God coming down to us. And he lives with us. He humbles himself and he suffers for us. And he dies for us. Do you understand this? Have you experienced this? Friends, there is no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. If you are outside of Jesus Christ, you will stand before God one day all by yourself. Your parents won't be there. Your friends won't be there. I won't be there. You will stand by yourself in your sins. And you'll have to give an account for it. But as a Christian, we will stand before God one day washed, redeemed, and free. All because of Jesus Christ. understand why this is the best news in the world. And so I implore you that are here to turn from your sense of trusting yourself and turn to Christ for salvation. And James is saying for us as Christians judgment is without mercy to those we show no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's saying to us, it is impossible to experience God's mercy and then not display it. He's saying to us, you haven't experienced God's mercy if you don't display it. James reminds us this morning that those that have experienced the incredible mercy of God will show this mercy to others. They will not play favorites based upon the outward. They will not discriminate. They will not be racist, either inwardly or outwardly. They will not look at the outward appearance of man and cast judgment. See, friends, this verse exposes us Who we truly are. And we as Christians. We don't show favoritism. We show the heart of God to those that we live with and around. Mercy. Triumphs. Over judgment. Are all of your friends. Just like you. How are we doing in this church family to make people feel welcome who are not like us? How are you doing in your own life to treat people who are not like you? Let me close with a story from Luke 7. Jesus answering the religious Simon. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Whether you're here this morning poor or rich, we were all born spiritually poor in need of the richness of God through his salvation. We were poor in the eyes of God and He still sent his son to die for us. Our sins, which were many, as Christians now are forgiven. And as Christians, this makes us different than the world. This makes us different how we relate and how we treat others. And God is calling us as a church to love one another, to be members, committed to one another, not just looking on the outside, but committed GOD IS NOT INTERESTED IN A BUNCH OF LONE INDIVIDUALS. HE WANTS WHOLE CHURCHES LOVING EACH OTHER ON DISPLAY FOR THE WORLD. AND WHEN SOMEONE COMES INTO OUR ASSEMBLY, WE ARE EAGER TO SHOW THEM THE SAME LOVE THAT GOD SHOWED US. AND I PRAY THAT THIS TEXT WILL IMPACT OUR CHURCH FOR GENERATIONS. I'm going to pray and ask the men to come forward this morning to serve communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. God, you know how this text has impacted me deeply this week. God, we know that there's areas for us to grow in the the treatment of others. And how the temptation is strong for us as as humans to to judge on the outside. And, And to not even think how we're now displaying favoritism to others. God, you have seen the racist thoughts in my heart. And you have seen the racist thoughts, and those that sit here this morning, and even as we, God, turn on the news and see and hear things that happen all throughout the world. God, I pray that as Christians, as as followers of you, we don't think and respond the same way as the world, but we think and respond like Jesus would, like Jesus has taught us to. And that we wouldn't discriminate. Father, you know the history of this country. The ugliness that our country has shown for years against those that were different. God, I pray that our church will never display that attitude. Help us, God, to be faithful to your word. To be loving to those, to anyone that comes in, God. To show and display the same love that you have shown us. And God, as we Partake of this, this this meal. This is a time for us, God, to remember yet again what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we glory in you. We glory in you, Jesus. We thank you for dying on the cross to save us, to redeem us, that keeps us, so that we will spend eternity forever with you.